So uh, last week, uh, Tyson, who is our Greenville campus pastor, uh, started the sermon by talking about how uh, he once ruined his own Christmas uh, when he opened his Batmobile present early. Um, if you were here last week, you probably remember that. Um, as a kid, he opened his present early, found out it was a Batmobile, and uh, sort of ruined the Christmas. So he went in for, as he called it last week, the quick fix, uh, and didn't wait well for uh, what was coming. So not to be outdone, of course, um, I have a similar story, but with a bit of a surprise ending. Um, I was 13, and for at least two good years before this Christmas, I had been pining for my own, as we called it then, hi-fi, uh, my own uh, hi-fi radio receiver, tape deck, uh, record player, and speakers all in one sort of self-contained uh, unit. <laughs> I don't know what else to call it. Uh, and I had, I had hinted, I had begged, I had pleaded, I had told my parents for months preceding this Christmas. I went so far as to actually circle the one that I wanted in the 1986 Sears Wish Book. Anybody remember the Wish Books? Yes. Big old honking things. Um, before the internet, kids, we had to actually... So, um, I remember it very clearly. It was on the right page as you're looking, uh, and, I, and I circled it and showed it to him about a hundred times, and I remember it clearly. I was very excited uh, about this, um, and, and I knew I had the right one picked because there were about six others that were fancier and better, had CD player, the big cabinet speakers. I knew there was no way I had a chance at those, so I picked very, uh, very strategically uh, the one that was, I think, 60 or 70 bucks. Uh, in fact, I have a picture of the Sears Wish Book from 1986 right here. There it is. That was it. That is the exact one. Uh, yes, yes. So page 680 in the 1986 Sears Wish Book, uh, Scott's Dream Hi-Fi Stereo System. Um, and listen, by the way, kids, we used to be able to fix our own cassette tapes with a pencil and some patience. Yes, a necessary skill in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so anyway, I, for some reason, I don't remember why, but I had this hunch that I had worn down my parents enough and that they had scrounged up enough for my dream stereo, so I was absurdly excited. I had, for some reason, I remember thinking, this is actually going to happen. Uh, and then my excitement got the best of me, and I got this awesome idea uh, because I knew my mom would always hide our presents, and she was good at it. Uh, but I was 13, and I had kind of a feel for where uh, these things might be because they weren't any longer in the back of the car as they were for years. It wasn't the trunk. It was other places. So I knew my mom had hidden this somewhere. Uh, so my brother and I wouldn't find them. So I went on a stereo hunt, uh, which was a brilliant idea. And I found it. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, uh, guess where I found it? Uh, hidden at the bottom of the clothes chute in the basement. Uh, because apparently my mom thought there's no way my 13-year-old boy is going to accidentally find this amid, amid the dirty clothes. So uh, I, I, I ruined my Christmas by finding my, uh, my dream stereo. And it gets worse. Somehow my parents found out that I found out because then I went back in a couple weeks to check on the status of my dream stereo and not only was it gone, it was replaced with an entirely different and very practical present that was a very distant number two for me. So I got caught and mom and dad replaced my dream stereo with a dot matrix printer for my computer. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was awesome. Um, so, 
Uh, I kept quiet for the next few weeks, and when we opened presents, I pretended to be excited about my dot matrix printer um, on Christmas Day. Yay, dot matrix printer. That's so much better than a stereo. Um, My parents, by the way, made it very, very clear that there was no chance, even after I begged and pleaded, that we were going to uh, trade it for the stereo. You have to live with the consequences of your impatience. Um, So no helicopter parenting or free-range parenting for we Wakefields. So, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I didn't wait well. I didn't wait well, and I, and I sort of functionally ruined the experience uh, by being impatient and by being nosy. Um, turns out there's a way to wait well and a way to not wait so well in life, <laughs> not just with Christmas presents. Uh, and for the believer in Jesus, uh, waiting well means preparing as if you really believe something better is coming. It means preparing as if something better that's worth your preparation is coming. It's preparing as if you actually believe that God is at work. And listen, God's people had been waiting in the Scriptures a long, long time for the promised Savior. Our four to five weeks once a year, uh, our four to five weeks of waiting for Christmas are nothing compared to the thousands of years that many generations had been waiting for the Savior. And whereas we know exactly when Christmas is coming and can count down the days and look at the Advent calendar and take out the chocolates or light the candles and be well aware of when it's happening and prepare accordingly, these were people who had no idea how long they had to wait. And yet they were remaining faithful, those who were faithful, by continuing to wait patiently and faithfully preparing as if something better was happening, as if God was at work, as if the Messiah was going to come, and yet prepare in their here and now. We sang a song earlier today that reflected this kind of dynamic for the people of God. Uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come, God, with us, and ransom captive Israel. Come and, and buy us back from the evil one. Pay for our sin, for we are exiled, we are captive because of that. And so we are mourning in our lonely exile in the here and now, waiting until the Son of God appears, at which time we can rejoice. We can rejoice. And that last line of that first verse says, Emmanuel, God with us, will come to thee, O Israel. So the people of God were in this in-between, waiting for God to work, being called to faithfully prepare as if the Messiah was going to come because they actually were being ready for something better than what they were experiencing. And throughout the Bible, there's a sharp contrast between those who wait in faithful preparation and those who wait passively. A sharp contrast throughout the Scriptures of those who wait by preparing for God to work, those who prepare as if he's working, and those who wait in a more traditional passive, I'm just going to sit and let God do the work kind of way. A sharp contrast is drawn between those who wait faithfully preparing and those who wait passively. And we're going to see that in the text today. And the difference is, The difference is those who prepare as if the king's actually coming. Those who wait well are preparing for a king who's coming. Instead of those who wait passively, 
who major in tweaking the world's resources for themselves because they don't really believe a king is coming and this is all there is. You're understanding some of that difference. Those who wait well prepare as if there's a king who's coming and God is working and it's worth my effort in the here and now as opposed to those who don't wait well and who just tweak the world's resources around them for self because they don't really believe that something better is going to happen. They don't really believe the king is coming. So this is what we see today in Luke 3. This is a helpful passage for us uh, because it gives us um, a picture of someone who was prepared as if God was working. The prophet John, John the Baptist, uh, he was prepared because he actually believed that God was at work. Jump in with me for um, a few minutes here for these 18 verses in Luke 3, starting at verse 1. Jump in with Luke 3, verse 1, where we're going to see Luke set the historical context for us here. First, we meet the head honcho of the Roman Empire, uh, the massively dominant world empire at the time. Look at this, verse 1. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Uh, Caesar was the title, Tiberius is the name. And then Luke names four regional governors under Caesar. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, Herod would eventually um, kill John the Baptist. His brother, Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, uh, Tetrarch of Abilene. And then Luke names the Jewish religious powers that be. He's giving us the historical context because that's part of how we know that John the Baptist is a prophet and Luke is telling us that. Verse 2, during the high priestess, priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So it is into that historical context, Luke naming all of those for us, that it says this, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So in the 15th year of the reign of Caesar, when Pilate and Herod and Philip and Lysanias and Annas and Caiaphas were in power, the reigning powers that be in traditional terms, it says the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke is signaling to us here in verses 1 and verse 2, in verses 1 and 2, he's signaling to us not only that John is a prophet and that there's this new era of God working in the world that's at hand, but that the traditional worldly powers were nothing compared to how God works. Nothing compared to the word of God. And because John the Baptist, because John was sent to, to, to be a forerunner of Jesus, and he believed in the power of the word of, of God over against traditional seats of power, as the world defines them, because John believed in the power of the word of God over against the powers of this world, he was prepared. He was prepared to do what he was called to do which was to prepare others for what God had called them to do. Listen to this again. John the Baptist believed in the word of God over against the powers of the world. And so he was prepared to do what he knew he was called to do, which was to prepare others to do what God had called them to do. Guess what? We are all, we are all called to be people who prepare so others are prepared. People who understand what's going on with the coming of God 
as Savior in human flesh, understand that this gift of Jesus is something for which we prepare. Our hearts must be prepared. Our world must be prepared. Our families must be prepared. Our relationships, our marriages, our resources, all of the things that we call our own are means of preparation for the coming of the King who came once at Christmas and is coming again. And so we are in our own time, in this in-between of the working of God, where we are called to do what John the Baptist is called to do, what the people before him were called to do, which is prepare as if God's still working. So that's what John does. And then he preaches. So uh, keep reading here, starting there at verse 3. And he, John, went into all of the region around the Jordan, meaning he didn't just stay in the wilderness outside Jerusalem, but he went in and out of Jewish and non-Jewish territory. That's significant. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming, uh, the same word is preaching or announcing, all the same word there, proclaiming a baptism, a full immersion, which is what baptism literally means, a baptism of repentance, which is a mindset to turn away from sin and toward God. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. So John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming, preaching, announcing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was how he prepared people for the coming of the king. And as a prophet, John had a very clear personal vision of helping others prepare for the coming of the king. This is why Luke tells us this beginning at verse 4. He says, as it is written, in other words, this was happening as predicted in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and this is in chapter 40 in Isaiah, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist took his personal vision for preparing others from what the word said about who he was. Would that we did that. Take our personal vision from the word of God. John the Baptist as it is written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, as in this dude John who was preaching, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Get things ready for the coming king, in other words. Make his paths straight. He's coming, get ready, be prepared. Make it easy for people to understand that he is the king. That's what make his paths straight mean there means there. Verse 5, same kind of idea. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, meaning things are leveling off so that the king can easily come. That's what God's doing. The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. These are all just kind of similar poetic ways to describe the idea that God is making a smooth way for the Messiah to come. He's making a smooth way for salvation to be made known in the world. So verse 6, And when this happens, all flesh, meaning all creation, not just human flesh, all creation shall see the salvation of God. You see, this isn't about geography. This is about Jesus. And it's about the Messiah coming as King who will accomplish salvation from sin. So because that's true of the Messiah coming as Jesus, Son of God, because he's coming to accomplish salvation from sin, uh, John had this sense of, we must prepare for that. We must get ready for that. Would, that. would that half of our preparation 
for what goes on in our lives be about preparing the way of the Lord into our hearts. We're in the same place he was. And so this is how he communicated this. Look at verse 7. This is how he told people to prepare. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, they were looking for some ritual to save them. He says, you brood of vipers. This is a good Christmas message. Uh, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Which is a fairly strong way uh, to call them to repent in earnest. Right? To repent in earnest and not just be baptized as some sort of ritual, as if that alone would save them. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you really believe, John is saying, as he's preaching to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, if you really believe that the king is coming and that he can save you from sin, then your behavior will show it. That's what he says here. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Shoot, John says, God can just as well turn these rocks into children of Abraham. And it'd be the same as you claiming someone else's faith. You're a child of Abraham and you have faith, then so do these rocks, is what he functionally says here. Friends, listen well to what John says. Having the right name, calling upon the faith of someone else, resting on the laurels of those who came before you, claiming a spiritual lineage isn't going to help you, John says. Because this is not about someone else repenting. This is about you repenting as preparation for Messiah. This is John's message. You prepare for the coming of the king by having a heart that's ready to hear from him. By having a heart that's ready to to take the stuff of your life. And for those to bear fruit that show that your repentance is real. So don't, so don't just come up and say, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. I was baptized by Scott Wakefield in October, blah, blah, blah. My grandpa was a da-da-da. He's saying this is about you being prepared with a soft heart to humble yourself before the coming king and acknowledge that your whole life's resources are about preparing others for the coming of the king. Even now, he says, verse 9, he says, even now, The axe is laid at the root of the trees. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's not not like it's cutting the tree, right? It's not cutting down the tree yet. But it's just kind of sitting there, leaning up against it, ready to start chopping when the Messiah comes. Now we're looking back, right? (laughs) So the Messiah has come. So even more so, a reason to understand the urgency of John's message. Now is the time to repent, not tomorrow. Now. Now is the time to repent and make your faith real. Show your your baptism was real. Show that the fruit of your life demonstrates the truth of repentance, he says. Every tree, therefore, this is kind of what we're talking about at, at at the front end, Scripture makes this distinction. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Either you are the real deal, John says, that bears fruit in keeping with repentance, or you will be thrown into the fire. (laughs) Merry Christmas is really uh, what John's saying here. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, He's saying in simple terms that true repentance always gives rise to behavior that proves repentance. True repentance always gives rise to behavior that proves that repentance. So at least some of those who were listening to John at the time there uh, wanted to know what that looked like. Okay, John, what does fruit-bearing repentance uh, look like? How, do, how, do, how does my life prove that? And so the crowds asked, look at this, verse 10, and we're going to ask this question at the end. What then shall we do? What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics, that's uh, basically a jacket, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do Likewise, this is what those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance do. He says, this is what those whose lives are ready for the coming king do, John says. Tax collectors, verse 12, also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do, which was hard in that day because basically an honest tax collector of that day was also a uh, starving tax collector. Soldiers also asked him, verse 14, and what shall we do? We, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, which was a culturally accepted sort of side hustle for soldiers of that day. That's kind of how they got paid on the side. It was an accepted thing for threats and extortion and false accusations to be means for them of getting paid. So be content with your wages, he says. So Luke lists people of three different uh, socioeconomic strata of that day there to say, in effect, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've got, what your job is, how high or how low, how important, how not you think you are or seem to be, depending on the world's standards, everyone can be ready for the coming of the king with a repentant heart. That's what Luke's saying here. Look at their response, verses 15 and following there. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, they were wondering whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. This is why I'm getting you ready for him. The strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. That was considered sort of a menial task. So John says, I'm not the coming king. You're not preparing for my coming. I'm preparing you for his coming. We must all hear this as a parallel personal vision for our lives. I'm, I'm not preparing you for me. You're not preparing somebody else to repent to you. You're preparing others. I'm preparing you. We are all called to prepare people for the coming of the king. That will happen. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When Jesus comes as Messiah the second time, the division 
will be just like the first time between those who are prepared for them, for him and his coming and those who are not. It's really simple. When Jesus comes again as Messiah, which means that we are in at the time, just like they were, of waiting by preparation. When Jesus comes as Messiah the second time, the division is between those who are prepared for him and those who are not. Luke summarizes in verse 18, says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news, preached the gospel to the people. Uh, So we're going to apply this message today by answering uh, one simple question that is the same question the people listening to John's uh, initial preaching asked. It's the same question. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? As a response to the idea that the king who has come at Christmas the first time, is coming again. And we are in this same place of waiting, uh, actively preparing for his coming. Well, it's the same answer that John gives here. We need to give away our jackets, go home cold. (laughs) We need to give away our money, knowing we've got everything we need in Jesus, even when we feel we never have enough. We need to recognize that for us, Refusal to be a grace-based thanksgiver and to participate in God's work as if you're preparing for him to work. Refusal to do that means that we are an obstacle that keeps crooked paths crooked. You see, John was preaching to the people because he had a very clear sense of his mission of preparing people for the coming king. When we keep ourselves from actively preparing as if God works, we become an obstacle. We keep crooked paths crooked. When we are not working to fix the small injustices in the world all around us from day to day, we are obstacles to the work and the movement of God. So what are we to do? (laughs) We are called to get into the flow of the movement of God in the world. To find a way to work where he is working. If we would just take that question for ourselves this week and meditate on this personally. Where, God, are you working and you want me to join you? Do you see the humility that's repentant in a posture that says, God, where do you want me to work? You see, a lot of us still are drafting behind the efforts of those who went before us and are functional tourists who are just passing through. John's preaching here was meant to expose drafting tourists who believe the lie that the world's resources were meant for self. He's a king. He owns it all. And John's message of repentance is to say, your meaningful participation in the work of God is to take the resources that are already His and give them back to Him with your life. A lot of us still think we'll receive the benefits of Jesus 
without living the life of Jesus. As if just being near Him. Or, or, or just being around church stuff. Or, or passively watching others join the team and get in the game. As if watching that is the same as actual repentance for ourselves. But friends, merely being physically close to those who are faithfully preparing and being sort of proximal, like, like close to those who have a relationship with God is never a substitute for actual service and actual relationship with God that actually changes you. If you come to this place and you feel the press of having to jump in and work and you feel like, I actually have to do something, then I think you're feeling what John's wanting his audience to feel, which is those with repentant hearts jump in and participate where God's working. They bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. If, if, if sometimes you just, if that, uh, you mean I have to do something? I have to sacrifice? If that's something you continually push away, that may be an indication that you have bought into the lie that joy means ease. That's not how this works. That's not how the life of Jesus works. The joy of the life of Jesus is experiencing self-sacrifice that looks like Jesus. And John's message of repent and pick up a shovel and get your feet moving is meant for the many modern fans of Jesus who like to sit and watch the celebration after the winning touchdown, thinking you are part of the team, believing you've participated in the countless hours of preparation and sacrifice that are involved, when actually you may not be. So we are a place... That's calling you to wait well, to wait faithfully with active feet, picking up a shovel, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We're calling you to join those who are faithfully sharing the joy of sacrifice that bears fruit for the coming king and that prepares people to meet him. We are calling you to prepare as if souls are at stake. Your own and the souls of those around you. And the king is coming. And it's all his. And he's going to claim it as his own. So don't live now as if that's not true. We have a saying uh, here at First Christian that's related to uh, habit number two. Habit number two is serve on the team. Um, and this saying comes from what we call our team code. And it's the first one of our seven sayings in the team code. Uh, it's my personal favorite. Uh, and it's great fun to watch this, uh, this saying uh, increasingly ring true here at First Christian. And it is this. We enjoy the fellowship of mutual surrender to the mission. We enjoy the fellowship, the togetherness of 
of sacrificing together for the sake of preparing people for the coming of the king. This is what John meant. This is what his preaching meant. Repent for the forgiveness of sins is something that happens in practical terms. This is not just idea. This is not just concept. This is something that is lived, that is active. It means, it means not just to think you have turned away from sin, <laughs> but to show it, to prove it by preparing the way of the Lord as if you actually believe he is coming. This is exactly what John means by bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we at FCC, we want to help you wait well and to prepare as if you actually believe he is coming. So we actually have a present for you this Christmas. Um, Seriously, they are under these uh, trees on stage in these boxes uh, right here. Um, You can shake them to your heart's content and make guesses later on if you'd like. Um, These are all actual presents. They really are. I'm not making this up. Uh, But they are not for today. They are for next week. Uh, they are for everyone who comes to our three services next week at 9, 10.45, and uh, 12.30 p.m. So invite your friends. Grab one of these invite cards. Uh, pray for someone to invite. Feel free to coax and cajole them with uh, the offer of a present. We are not above functional bribery. Um, so we've got a little present we're going to hand out at the end of services next Sunday. But don't look into them, uh, middle school boys especially, because that will ruin the surprise. That will mess up the experience. Uh, So we want to encourage you to wait well with us. To wait well with us because we believe the king's actually coming back. And we want to to use the resources of our lives uh, to prepare people for his coming. That's what we're called to do. Just like John was saying for those first believers as they anticipated the coming of Jesus. Wait well with us, using all of God's resources as means of preparation for the work he wants to do through you, through us. God loves to work with those who are faithful with his kingdom resources. And that's how we experience the joy of Jesus together, friends, preparing the way for his coming. Let's pray.